Hey, it's Jesse. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. We'd like to better understand who's listening and how you're using podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. One word. It takes less than 10 minutes and it really helps support the show. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. One word. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. There aren't many events in American history more covered in film than the moon landing. So if I tell you about a new documentary on the mission that sent Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the surface of the moon, I'd forgive you for feeling like you've seen and heard it all before. Talking head interviews with old scientists, shots of dramatic JFK speeches, one small step for man. We've all seen that kind of documentary. But believe me when I say this, Apollo 11, the new film, is not that kind of documentary. It is, and I am not exaggerating here, it is a monumental achievement in filmmaking, made up entirely of archival footage with no narration, no interviews, just images and voices from the mission and the run-up to the mission. Some of the footage you've seen, but a lot of it you haven't. A lot of breathtaking 65-millimeter shots in Apollo 11 have never been released to the public until now. I saw it the other night on a date with my wife, and I was absolutely blown away. I said, got to get the director of this on bullseye. The sound of the film is also captivating, especially the recordings from the Mission Control Center. Here's a little bit. The six-minute mark in our countdown for Apollo 11. Now five minutes, 52 seconds and counting. Booster flight. CPSS, verify go for launch. CPSS, verify go for launch. CTSC, verify go for launch. Booster flight. Verify go for launch. SRO, verify go for launch. SRO, verify go for launch. LM, verify go for launch. LM, go for launch. We have some 7.6 million pounds of thrust pushing the vehicle upward. A vehicle that weighs uh, close to six and a half million pounds. Todd Douglas Miller, welcome to Bullseye, and congratulations on this amazing movie. Oh, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. So what made you think that you could make this movie? Like, how did it even cross your radar? Well, uh, it was very much an experiment. Um, <laughs> luckily, now I think it paid off. But uh, yeah, it really began as an editing exercise. Could we tell uh, the story of Apollo 11, the mission, through only archival materials? That process started uh, about three years ago. Um, started with working with uh, my archive producer, Stephen Slater, who was doing a lot of uh, synced audio work um, with uh, footage from Mission Control that had not been uh, sunk before, audio-wise. So that definitely piqued my interest. Um, and then uh, if you're going to do a, you know, a film about Apollo 11, you need to make sure that the quality is good. Uh, so we were engaged at that point with NASA and the National Archives about doing a large-scale scanning operation with some of the existing film materials they had. Uh, this included 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and then all the still photography that the astronauts sh- uh, shot during the mission. And it really started as a research project to try to quantify how much material was actually out there. Uh, and no one had really done that before. And, and certainly it hadn't been done uh, with the facilities that we were engaging with. Things were spread out. It had been 50 years. Um, and there really hadn't been an update in, in a lot of the, the quality of just those materials. 
sales alone. And then shortly into uh, three or four months into the uh, that process, uh, we were alerted to this discovery of this large format collection. Uh, this was all 65 millimeter film that was shot back then, mainly around uh, the launch and also in mission control and then the recovery operations. Uh, and that certainly changed the entire course of our project. Let's start with the first thing that you started with, which is SoundSync. You talked about that in a way that I think made sense to filmmakers who were listening. But I, I think what you are describing is that there was basically a guy sitting with hundreds or maybe thousands of hours of film and hundreds or maybe thousands of hours of sound and trying to match them up? Yeah, so if you can put yourself in mission control, um, you have all these flight controllers sitting there. And they're looking at screens and they're doing their jobs. There was two cameramen uh, with 16-millimeter cameras that had no sound capabilities. Uh, it was, as we call it, MOS, mint-out sound. Those cameras uh, were just, you know, taking uh, four or five-second shots. It was all handheld. So they would on off the camera. Each guy had two cameras. Uh, so they would put one down, grab the other one, uh, get a few shots, put that one down, grab the other one for efficiency. And at the end of the day, they would mash all those reels together, get them developed uh, and printed. And then, you know, a lot of those were sent off to archival places. Simultaneous to that, uh, all of those mission controllers were actually recorded uh, on a flight loop. So all everyone that had a headset on was being recorded. So what uh, our archive producer attempted to do was to actually, and nine times out of ten it was lip syncing, uh, the air-to-ground audio transmissions with that footage, that 16-millimeter footage. If you were lucky, you could get a clock in mission control, and that might give you a time of day. And then you can refer to a transcript, you know, with the error to ground audio and try to sync it up that way. But nine times out of 10, it was just reading lips, having the expert knowledge of what happened during the mission, knowing that Bruce McCandless might have had a white turtleneck on on day two as opposed to a yellow one on day four. (laughs) Now, there was an easy out for you here, which is to do what most people who were making a documentary in a situation like this would do, which is sync enough of the footage that when someone important is talking, uh, you can cut to them. You know, you can you can you can sync up the parts where a guy says, uh, "Let's go to the moon," or like, "Here we are at the moon." But then the rest of it, you could just have uh, sounds that you invented and narration and music over what essentially ends up being a lot of B-roll. Why did you not want to do it that way, which is the obvious way? Well, one is it it had been done before uh, countless times. But two, in order to understand exactly what happened during the mission, which spanned nine days, uh, we really wanted to know everything that was out there. There were certain moments that I had read about or had talked to, um, you know, the astronauts about or had heard in other interviews that I'd never seen in a fiction or a nonfiction film on the subject. For instance, Neil Armstrong had been asked, you know, what his most idyllic moment from the mission was, and it wasn't stepping um, down on the lunar surface, getting home, even the launch. It was seeing the the moon about 100,000 miles out in the solar eclipse that happened. And when you hear the audio of it, him and and Buzz and, and Mike, Collins and the command module are uh, really going crazy over it. 
You know, during the Apollo 11 mission, they really didn't document what they were doing so much. It, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but to put yourself back then, the earlier Apollo missions that went to the moon, 8, 9, and 10, actually 9 did not, that never left low Earth orbit, but 8 and 10, and then the later ones, they wanted to document everything. But Apollo 11, their mission was to land and get home. Knowing that there was scenes like that, there was um, a, a couple other moments in the mission that had happened that I hadn't seen depicted before, we wanted to know what else was there out there. Um, and the only way to do that was to lay everything out in a nine-day timeline, see every available frame of footage, stills, and audio, and match it all up to what we know, and then talk to people. I have to say that, you know, I've seen space documentaries before, and I've certainly seen footage of the moon landing before. And there's kind of two categories of things that you ordinarily see. One of them, in the case of the moon landing, is those shots that were broadcast on televisions in the United States as it was happening, the grainy video footage that's coming from space to Earth. And, you know, you hear the one small step for man bit. That is amazing. The other thing that you usually see in films like this is breathtaking shots of the beauty of Earth from space or space from space. And those are also amazing. Uh, I went and saw, you know, I saw a movie, a space movie at a science museum on an IMAX screen that was that, you know, it was 20 minutes of that in 3D with Patrick Stewart narrating or something. It was pretty cool. I have never felt the kind of immediacy that I felt from watching your film. And I think partly it was something about the physical experience of seeing everyone as clearly as I saw them, like it not looking like a documentary from the late 60s, early 70s, but it looking both sort of grandly cinematic and like immediately human and touchable. And I wonder if there is a filmmaking reason for that or even a technical reason for that about the kind of footage that you had. Yeah, you know, having said that the Apollo 11 crew didn't document things, um, but they they actually did, and they documented really important things. For instance, the moon landing. Um, It always amazes me that anyone would ever cut away from a moon landing. We show it in the film as one unbroken shot. Uh, There's a reason why Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Neil Armstrong are in that are honorary members of the American Society of Cinematography. They trained on these systems, and they took beautiful, beautiful shots, and one of which is that one unbroken shot that Buzz Aldrin took out his window uh, while he was making the first landing on another world. And it's extraordinary. It's interesting because the story of the moon landing is a story of unification and, you know, common resolve. And it's rooted in those Kennedy speeches in the early 1960s. And it's like hard to remember 
what a mess the country was at the time. <laughs> like, really as much of a mess as, as the country has been outside of the world wars in the, in the last, uh, you know, 125 years or whatever. And it is really amazing to see, like, big groups of regular Americans sitting in grandstands and buying popcorn and watch, you know, Nixon walk in or Spiro Agnew or whatever and realize like this wasn't this wasn't the culmination of a period of uh peace and harmony this was an incredible achievement in the context of a country that was rife with division that's right um i think one of the one of the shots that we had kind of um that encapsulates that we we did have some 8 millimeter that i don't know who who filmed it uh but it, johnny carson gets on a private jet with ed mcmahon and uh, as a guysamoff and um uh, you know the famous <laughs> science fiction writer and uh they go down to florida um and they have to get on these buses like everyone else to go out to the launch site it's this kind of mass uh herding of all these different people and you see it in the film particularly with the large form Format. People of all races, different colors, all coming together for this um, this one event. But the backdrop of what was going on, um, I think, is tough for people. There was a draft going on. People were at mothers were asked to kiss their you know sons goodbye and to go off and, and fight in a war. A lot of people didn't believe in, and uh, I, I can't imagine you know um, what the response would be like that in today's climate. And you know the, the fact that we are in so many uh, conflicts, just not us, everyone around the world. I think this was, uh, you know, one of the last times where humanity was all um, was all one. Uh, we were all, you know, uh, rooting for for this great thing to happen. There was some kind of informal polling that was done in, in one of the Walter Cronkite broadcasts on CBS News at the time, and they took a poll before uh, the launch, and it was about fifty percent of Americans uh, believed in the space program. After the launch, that number had climbed up to around 70. And then they took another informal poll on the way home uh, before even the landing. And they said right after the uh, the first footsteps on the lunar surface, uh, that number climbed up to 90%. More Bullseye after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. Then, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. Paul Parker panel, we have just 30 seconds to prove to Max Fund listeners that we know what the F we're talking about when it comes to pop culture. All right, you guys, let's go. Famous Chris's. Walk-in. Christofferson. Hemsworth. Karen, what's the most iconic lesbian snack? The wings at Hooters. The answer is fried green tomatoes. Margaret, what is the Marvel Cinematic Universe missing? <laughs> My interest. Winter, name someone who will EGOT in your lifetime. Ike Barinholtz. That's beautiful. Top gear or top model? Sadly, I have to say top gear. The clear answer is top chef. But top model taught us about smizing. Pop Rocket, smart takes on everything. Catch us every Friday on Maximum Fun. 
Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. And this month, we're celebrating women in comedy. And this week, from the Netflix series Russian Doll, we're joined by co-creator Leslie Headland and actor Greta Lee. We challenge them to not one, but two games about real nesting dolls and fashionable food trends. Listen and subscribe now. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Todd Douglas Miller, directed Apollo 11. It's a new documentary about the moon landing, compiled entirely of archival footage, some of it never before seen. So one of the best science books that I've ever read, and I don't want to pretend to have read a whole bunch of science books, so maybe I will say a great science book I read once was the autobiography of the physicist Richard Feynman. And I, he actually has two. I read both of them. They're both really fun. And one of them has a chapter about his involvement in the investigation into, I believe it was the Challenger disaster. And one of the things that he explains very patiently that I think he had to explain to Congress at the time was that in a mission like this, risk tolerances are stretched beyond like human capacity to understand simply because, you know, if you have a 99.99% chance of something working, you imagine that to mean that like 99.99% of the time the thing will work when actually if you're building a spaceship from scratch, there's 10,000 different things that have a 99.99% chance of working and only one of them has to not work for everything to explode. <laughs> That's right. How aware were you in watching this footage and reading about the mission to the moon of the possibility of death? Yeah, I mean, a big part of our research was to, you know, or just as, you know, responsible filmmakers uh, was to go and learn about all the, all these things. You mentioned the Challenger investigation. That was a big part of my life. I was in third grade when that happened. We had TVs wheeled in. Every kid in my school and, you know, all around the world watched that. You know, it was a horrific tragedy. You know, not only Richard Feynman, but the, the head of the commission was Neil Armstrong. And if you go back and you start learning about Neil Armstrong's life, you find that there was so much tragedy tragedy uh, involved. You know, Neil and both Buzz Aldrin uh, were fighter pilots during the Korean War. And not only that, uh, you start looking through the footage, you realize that the predecessor to the Saturn V was the Atlas rocket, um, which they still use today, but it was blowing up, you know, almost on a routine basis uh, on the launch pads. And the astronauts are watching this. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine being, you know, going down and watching a launch and seeing the vehicle explode? At one point, we actually had a graphic on the front of the film, and this is a true stat. I just wanted to know how many successful attempts to go to the moon had there been, both manned and unmanned. The NASA's success rate was less than 50%. It was 48%. So I think if the astronauts actually would have known that, I wonder if, you know, armed with that knowledge, if they would have sat on top of that rocket and, and, and done it. But I, they probably would have. Uh, it was just a known risk and it was accepted. These guys had been dealing with it their entire lives. And it just wasn't them. It was the engineers and the flight controllers and everyone involved in the program. Uh, a lot of them were ex-military. So they were used to, you know, seeing this type 
of thing. But certainly, I'm sure it was in the back of their minds that, you know, that one little thing could have gone wrong. And I, it's certainly reflected, you know, in the footage when you see close-ups of exactly what, you know, the materials that these spacecraft were built out of. And you see the hand rivets, you know, that are in there. And, you know, knowing you are, you know, you're inches away from death if one of those rivets fails. It really is something to see the huge shots of the crafts and the rockets and look at it and think, that really looks like it was just made by a guy. Like, uh, probably a guy who's good at it, but not like a perfect spaceship-making robot, but just like somebody with a glue gun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, what was really interesting was, to me at least, all the astronauts had their own specialties. So Michael Collins was in charge of spacesuits. Neil Armstrong was in charge of building the simulators. Buzz Aldrin, you know, he had a PhD in uh, uh, orbital rendezvous. So they, they, his nickname was Dr. Rendezvous. All of those guys would work with the contractors um, to, you know, build these all these systems. And there's these great shots of this wonderful group of men and women hand sewing all the space suits together. And I can only imagine if, you know, you're walking around on the lunar surface, um, you're thinking, I hope they got that stitch right. Because <laughs> if they didn't, you know, yeah. you were you were dead. <laughs> if somebody accidentally didn't lock stitch it, they just simple stitched it. <laughs> right, exactly. I... I sometimes struggle to describe what it is that makes me uncomfortable about a lot of reality TV. But I think it has something to do with the fact that while all filmmaking and certainly all editing is a subjective uh, presentation of a point of view, like as soon as any choices are made, it's not a literal representation of reality anymore. I feel like one of the things that the rise of reality television has done is is given a lot of people the feeling that their responsibility is to narrative and not to truth or reality. That like all filmmakers are making choices to make their film as interesting as possible or else they wouldn't be making a film. But there's a big difference between, you know, you can't necessarily put a put a microphone underwater to get the exact sound that a fish makes you might you might have to recreate it as best you can there's a big difference between that and you know bear grills jumping over a ravine and if you saw it in a wide shot you would see it's two feet from the freeway right and that feels like like that lack of trust in media representing reality or truth feels like it over the last 20 or 25 years has become more and more endemic to me. Like that people, as they have lost faith in institutions, that media is one of them and that is a reason. And they, there are many people who just feel like it's all a show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we kind of take an old school approach to filmmaking, particularly when you have footage like this, you know, every project's different, but you don't want to feel the hand of the filmmaker. You want to get out of the way of it and let it speak for itself. Uh, and all the great films that I like do that, or they find moments that you can focus on that have been overlooked. Uh, it can be, and that goes for fiction films. You know, you know, Steven Spielberg's great because he's able to focus on the little moments within a scene. Uh, it might be a shot. It might be something that he's instructed an actor to do. And uh, all the great 
you know, masters are, are able to do that. Certainly everyone is struggling to get, you know, eyeballs on content and there's a lot out there. But to have a communal experience in front of a very, very large screen, uh, like an IMAX screen or uh, in a big theater, even today, it's, you know, it's a rare thing to have a really great experience like that. Um, and that's something that we're, you know, definitely in, investing in is, is uh, bringing a, a sense of that back to cinema. I mentioned how many people in the last 50 years have lost faith in institutions. And there are plenty of folks who have taken that to the point where they do not believe in scientists, do not believe the earth is round or roughly spherical. They don't believe the moon landing really happened. And like, that's a goofy joke. And, you know, reasonably so because they're so wrong. But I found myself really understanding Buzz Aldrin punching that conspiracy theorist a few years ago. When I realized, you know, watching this film, the scale of this endeavor and how many people's lives hung in the balance, whether it was their like their passion and their commitment and all of the brain power and life power they could muster or literally whether they might live or die having done this. And I wonder if spending years with all of this footage changed the way that that you felt about, you know, collective endeavor and whether it's worth it <laughs> and whether it's okay to punch a conspiracy theorist if you're Buzz Aldrin and he's calling you a liar. <laughs> well, the short answer is yes and yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I am endlessly fascinated by um, people that believe that we didn't go to the moon, the earth is flat, and other non-scientific uh, you know, beliefs. Uh, we just live in an incredible age of discovery and scientific knowledge is transforming the way that all of us interact um, and live. And to deny those things uh, are just you know, comical. So when Buzz takes it upon himself to uh, right or wrong, um, <laughs> I stand behind him. I, I've seen the footage. He, he gave the guy a couple chances to walk away first. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the first encounter as I understand it. But yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I think it was more interesting to believe in the counter conspiracy that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or, you know, everyone watching all over the world um, conspired to, to fake this thing. We were actually, there was a small part of me that was hoping, you know, that Stanley Kubrick would enter into a frame, you know, of some of the footage <laughs> we were digitizing. But uh, happy to say that did not happen. Well, Todd, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time to be on, on Bullseye, and I was just gobsmacked by your movie, so thank you very much for your film as well. Oh, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Todd Douglas Miller, director of Apollo 11. The film is in theaters now, and it is breathtaking. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park, beautiful Los Angeles, California, where my colleague Jordan witnessed a big goose fight down by the lake. Uh, all kinds of birds were freaking out. According to this list in front of me, geese were freaking out, ducks, seagulls. I mean, that's three different kinds of bird. It was chaos. But uh, at the end, all the geese turned out okay. So we're glad for that. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help sometimes from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks for sharing it with us, Dan. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks to them and our recommendations of their music generally. And before you go, I have been doing this show for a very long time. We're coming up on two decades. So there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews in our archive. You can find them all at MaximumFun.org. You can find the last few years' worth on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne and at bullseye on Twitter. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.